Hello, I'm Jonathan Charles, and this is Pocket Dilemmas, where Kerry Law and I tackle political and economic questions which are facing the world today. What are Pocket Dilemmas? Are algorithms biased? Will robots take away your job? Do you trust cryptocurrencies? How do we bridge the pay gap? What is the future of poverty? This is Dilemmas at EBRD.com. Robots will lead humanity into new civilization. In the future, probably uh, humans and robots will work and live together. It's a rather apocalyptic view of the future. Uh, that is, of course, the music from War of the Worlds by Jeff Wayne, uh, the sign of the monsters coming from Mars, the machines. So the machines are with us now. They're going to be more with us. Uh, and really, my dilemma, uh, Kerry, my dilemma is I want to understand this a bit better because I'm not quite sure. Are robots taking over our jobs? What is the future of work? Is it us against the machines? Or is this all completely overblown? Yeah, it's confusing. You're not alone. I think a lot of people are, are kind of wondering the same thing. And when you look at some of the jobs, and I was just looking uh, recently, the World Economic Forum's just published the Future of Jobs 2018 report, and you look at the sort of jobs that they say are emerging and those that are declining, you do see some evidence for change. It's very clear. I'm just looking down this list here. The jobs landscape in 2022, what does it look like? Well, emerging roles, they say, are data analysts and scientists, uh, AI and machine learning specialists, general and operation managers, software and applications developers, those that are declining, data entry clerks, those jobs that probably won't exist soon, accounting, all sorts of things like that. So you can see a shift going on. Yeah, and I guess, you know, that's really good news for us, Jonathan, right? Because <laughs> our jobs are mostly soft skills. Um, I knew that not being good at maths would um, pay <laughs> off eventually. So, you know, we talked about um, this test we took in the last podcast about how to algorithm-proof yeah. your job. And it turns out there are actually a lot of tests like this. So we took the same one that the BBC put out to talk about how to robot-proof your job. And again, same thing. It basically said if your job requires a lot of emotional judgment or empathy— like ours, um, then you should be rather safe from the robots taking over I'll your job. I'll try not to get over-emotional about that. Oh, good. Um, so, you know, I guess let's, let's to just to set the stage for this conversation, let's start from the very beginning. So when I just think about a robot, I immediately think about the exoskeleton of a robot. So something like Terminator yeah. or Ex Machina. And we tried to figure out, okay, so if we're going to start with kind of the, the basic, what is a robot, let's talk about the exoskeleton. And we found out that the first active exoskeleton was actually discovered and made in one of our countries of operation in Serbia. So it wasn't a place like the United States or in Japan or in China, like some may think. It's in an emerging market. Exactly, exactly. It was at the Mihailo Pupin Institute in 1969 in Serbia. So we actually sent our producer, Rebecca, to the Serbian capital of Belgrade grade to meet the leading robotic scientist called Alexander Rodich to find out what his outlook is on robots and the future. It is common belief that uh, if once a robot uh, become superior, then human race probably completely degraded or disappeared. And uh, nobody wished to happen it. So probably in the future, new laws will be brought 
to restrict uh, the progress in this uh, scientific field. Because very clever robots can be compared with uh, maybe technological clones. So he predicts that by 2071, robots both physically and mentally will overtake humans. And we're going to need all sorts of legislation to kind of protect humans and, you know, probably new future laws to kind of restrict and guide the progress of robots and the interplay between robots and humans. All right. I look forward to arm wrestling a robot. Clearly, uh, I'm going to be defeated on that. So that's quite a picture that you've painted. But we still have that central dilemma then today. Are robots taking over our jobs? What is the future of work? Is it us against the machines? And, and, you know, when you look online, when you start doing lots of research, you come across some amazing things. I was uh, looking at something from uh, Stefan Casriel. He's the chief executive of Upwork, which is a global freelancing platform where um, businesses and independent professionals connect and they collaborate remotely. Their vision of future of work is everyone is freelance. Uh, and, and he shares some thoughts, Casriel, about what he's telling his children. He explains why. He says, there are five things I'm telling my kids to prepare them for the future. Robots probably aren't taking over. You'll be in school for the rest of your lives. So it's not a finite experience. You can be your own boss. Social skills must be a top focus. Those soft skills that we've just been uh, hinting at. Uh, the future is up to you, is his final, uh, his final thought. So I think those are thoughts that we should pursue, actually, as we start uh, thinking about this in the next few minutes. Uh, if you're listening, by the way, let me remind you, you are listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. You can review us on iTunes, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com, follow us on Twitter at ebrd. And we have two guests to help us find our way through this, this difficult maze. Uh, Jason Furman is here with us in the studio. He's Harvard University's uh, Kennedy School of Government Senior Fellow, and he's a Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Joining us on the phone line is uh, Chief Economist of the EBRD, Sergei Guriev. He's authored our flagship transition report last year. Of course, that was dedicated to the future of work. And Sergei is taking part in lots of discussions in Switzerland at the moment, so which is where he joins us from on the phone. Let me ask both of you, perhaps Jason first, give us your five or ten seconds top line as to how you see this debate. We've thought for a while the robots are going to come take all of our jobs. We've been wrong for a while. That's not the biggest problem we're going to face going forward, but we are going to face a number of problems and we need to be getting ready for them now. All right, we'll unpick those problems in the next few minutes. Uh, Sergey, your top line on this discussion? Yes, I agree with Jason that I think the issue is not that just robots will take all the jobs, but robots will take jobs from some of the people and may actually contribute to political problems related to uh, lack of access to economic opportunity. Okay, so you can't deny that automation is everywhere. We've clearly heard that maybe if a robot doesn't take over your entire job, it'll definitely take over at least some of your job. Um, you know, and for instance, in Zurbank, the largest bank in, Rus in the Russian Federation, they rely on artificial intelligence to make over 35% of their loan decisions. And they actually anticipate ramping it up to 75% in the next five years. Um, and robot lawyers in the same bank, uh, they've already taken over 3,000 human jobs in the legal department. So 
Jonathan, Roberts are taking over, or at least they are on the, in the legal field, it seems. And, and actually in the legal and, uh, and banking field, why shouldn't, if, they, if they're programmed properly, why shouldn't they be able to make as good a decision as a human? Because after all, you program the human decisions in. A lot of it's about mathematical calculation or knowledge of certain bits of the law. Maybe that is an area, clearly, where, where there is scope for, uh, for this robotization. You know, the number of robots at work, Kerry, has reached record levels. In 2018, the global unemployment level fell to 5.2%. So certainly there are still many jobs out there. Um, but, you know, we are seeing huge numbers of robots. Uh, and we may be at the lowest level of employment, uh, of unemployment in, in, in 38 years. But clearly... At the same time, we are seeing this creeping robotization. So, you know, there's still hope for human lawyers, but I wonder whether we are seeing a transition. Well, Jason Furman, you know, you're here to help us resolve the dilemmas. Help us out. Are we, where do you think we are now in this discussion? Because if you look at those unemployment figures, they're very low. At the same time, more robotization. But do you think that balance will endure? You know, there's four reasons why historically automation hasn't resulted in mass unemployment. One is it creates new types of jobs. You know, all the things around us in the technology industry today that no one could possibly have imagined 100 years ago. But second, it makes us richer, and that makes us want more of old types of jobs. We have a lot more people working in restaurants now than we had 100 years ago because people eat out more than they did 100 years ago because they're richer now. Third, a lot of what automation does is replace particular tasks. They replace part of your job. Um, Short-haul truckers, truckers within cities, um, aren't going to be replaced so soon because they have to load the stuff and unload the stuff in addition to driving the truck. So even if the truck drives itself, you'll still need a person um, in it. Their job will just change. But the last reason is the one that I think should make us the most worried which is that um, wages adjust. And sometimes that means wages adjust down for people with less skills who can be replaced by robots, adjust up for people who figure out how to master and manipulate those robots. And so you keep people employed, but you keep them employed at the cost of a large increase in inequality and all of the social, political, and economic problems which we are starting to see come that. out in many societies, of course, right? Yes, and that's not a you know thing you see overnight or one particular year. That's something you measure over a decade, over 20 or 30 years. And it's not something we need to predict the future and talk about as you know science fiction writers. We can actually look at the past, and we've seen it happening over the last couple decades, and there's every reason to expect it to continue. I mean, I believe history is often very, very useful in terms of contextualizing all this. So if I cast my mind back to the mid-1970s in the United Kingdom, where there was a lot of discussion on automation in the workplace, and it was starting to happen, particularly in uh, industry. And the thought was, you know, yes, that will take jobs, uh, but actually it doesn't matter because we'll all only have to work 15 hours a week. The rest of the time we'll be focusing on our leisure. Uh, We will still have the money. Now, that prediction didn't come true, uh, but it is, you know, is is there a parallel there to the sort of automation that we saw in the past? I mean, one part of why that didn't come true is, you know, humans are pretty insatiable. Um, You know, John Maynard Keynes wrote in the 1930s about the economic possibilities for our grandchildren, and he thought 
you know, we wouldn't worry working very much and be mm. quite content with our living standard. And if we wanted a 1930s living standard, um, we wouldn't need to work very much, but no one's particularly happy today um, with the living standards of the 1930s. And so I think that, you know, drive to continue to grow, which is undiminished as rich as our countries are today, has been, you know, is the reason why work um, is so important. The other reason is it's just an important part of our identity. You know, it's an important part of meaning in our lives. And that's why I think work has to be at the center of whatever your vision of the economy is for the future. So, you know, to your point, Jason, we do, you know, we almost do work more than we do anything else in our lives. We sleep more than we work, but that's about it. You know, so I guess... Just I wish. <laughs> well, at least, at least I do. Sorry. <laughs> um, so... To really succeed in kind of in this world where the nature of work is really changing, you've said before that training and skills are really the only path. Is this the government's job? And if it is, how do you convince governments to kind of invest more in this or at least focus on it policy-wise? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of different things we can do, but I think skills is far and away the most important. Um, if you look at what estimates of what jobs are most threatened by automation, they're predominantly less skilled jobs done by people with less education. So the first answer is, you know, more skills. Um, the second is what type of skills? You know, STEM will be important to many people and, you know, in a technological economy having those skills. But a lot of STEM skills are things that the robots can do so much better than us. Whereas, as you were saying before, the soft skills, the interpersonal, the judgment, the empathy, um, those are what humans are particularly good at. Um, how you do education and training in that um, is, is tough. But yes, absolutely. I think the government has historically always played a really important role. You know, part of why we coped with the wave of um, shifting from agriculture to manufacturing was countries around the world you know, started paying for high school and making high school something that the government provided. So we had a massive increase in government spending on education. That's the only reason we coped with the transition from agriculture to manufacturing. We need a similar increase now. But I think, I think the public sector is a bit behind the curve here. Jason, if I think back to, say, 1997, it was a big thing in the Labour government in the United Kingdom when Tony Blair and Gordon Brown came in. We have to set up lifelong learning. We recognise this is the way forward for economies. And there was a lot of talk around it. But whether that's really delivered, I think, must be a very, very big question. I don't see the state setting out a plan for lifelong learning. Uh, almost as though everybody has their own individual lifelong learning book. That doesn't really work like that. They haven't delivered on that. They've talked about it. And if I can give another example, again, going back to 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, people bettered themselves by going often to night school, uh, to evening classes, and often learn new skills. Those have fallen away as well. Obviously, there's a more online learning here, but people actually have to be proactive in doing it. It would seem to be a lot easier if they had a physical place to go mm -hmm. and do their lifelong learning. Yeah. I mean, on your first, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's lots of talk and not a lot of action on lifelong learning. And, you know, that's I think, pretty worrying. Though, um, isn't it? I think that is worrying. Uh, I think that is worrying. And yes, I think it's something all our governments need to do a lot more of. You know, on the online education, you know, so f I think we'll figure it out one day, but we haven't yet. Um, so far, it's largely been a disappointment. Um, it largely, um, 
you know, does not seem to work very well. But, um, you know, it, you know, it, it has to in some manner. Um, and, and to some degree, maybe that's with better technology. If it's more, um, you know, you get a digital tutor that uses AI to interact and respond to you. You have something that allows you to take a test and as creepy as it is, sort of mm. monitors your eyeballs to make sure they're not straying <laughs> off um, and looking up the answers. I mean, that's what we yep, do with our yep. students when mm. they take tests in my classroom. Right. We're, we're looking around to make sure no one's doing that. Um, you need some way to do that. So I think some of it might be that we need even more technology mm. um, to make this work. Interesting thought. Okay, let me remind you, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. Review us on iTunes, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com, follow us on Twitter at ebrd. Uh, our dilemma, of course, is this question about whether today uh, we are looking to a future where robots make us irrelevant as human beings in the workplace. Let's bring in Sergei Guriev. He's in Switzerland uh, on the telephone. We've already heard a bit about Serbia, where automation uh, is, uh, is, is, is happening in some areas, but is below average in comparison to other Central European economies, Sergei. What about other countries? How are they looking in this whole debate? I'm, I'm very happy that this example from Serbia was brought in because it also shows the positive impact of technological change and robotization on inclusion, on access to opportunity, because what technology can do, it's not only destroying jobs, it's also creating access for people with limited ability to participate in labor markets. Talking about other countries in our regions, of course, the champions of robotization are central European economies, like Poland, Slovakia, Slovenia, Hungary. These are the countries which are now champions in terms of industrial development. Now, these are the countries, of course, that may be vulnerable to uh, robotization. Why? Because if we talk, for example, about Slovakia, the country which produces more cars per capita than any other country in the world, automotive industry is the one which is most vulnerable to robotization. And so these challenges, unfortunately, are even more prominent and salient for the most advanced Central European economies than they are for some of other countries which are somewhat behind. I mean, it's an interesting point, isn't it, Sergey? Just just on this question of the emerging economies, many of which we we work in, you, is it an argument both ways? On the one hand, they might be in quite a strong position because they have the potential to leapfrog uh, areas of technology because they the gaps are so huge, often with existing technology in the West, so they could just do a leapfrog and move forward. Or are they really in a position where they're going to be punished quite badly, actually, economically, because they, they just can't have the investment they can't have the focus that some of the richer economies have. Which way do you think it goes? Well, uh, in principle, theoretical possibility is there. You can leapfrog if you skill your labor force. One example would be Belarus, which is now developing an IT sector at an amazing speed. And also, by the way, creating online education for IT engineers, driven precisely by private sector, which knows what skills it needs. There are public-private partnerships here, which are very important. So, Sergey, you already kind of hinted hinted at it, but in our transition report this year, you also looked at the importance of education and how many of our countries lag behind in the quality of education. There's one shining example, however, Estonia. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening in Estonia? Many of our countries are better educated than comparable emerging economies because in communist times, education was pretty much 
an ideological priority for communist government. Uh, overall, we have inherited an education system which produces a lot of quantity of education, but not necessarily quality in terms of skills which are needed in today's labor market. Estonia is an exception, and in transition reports, we look at the experience of Estonia, which reformed its school system in 1990s using Finland's school system as an example. And Finland now is one of the champions of schooling, especially in terms of delivering digital skills. So we're not seeing that mass reform in many in many countries. There's an interesting example from Lithuania, though, where they have a robotics academy, and they've got a program helping three-year-old toddlers in nurseries to learn and understand geometric shapes, logical sequences, all the things that you might find useful if you're going to go into the programming world and uh, and the sort of thing that could benefit from robotics. But I wonder then, the emphasis is on that, but if we're right that the higher paid jobs are going to rely, the ones that are not taken over, they're going to rely on uh, empathy, on those soft skills, uh, maybe we're not putting enough, enough effort, Jason, into, into that. Yeah. You know, look, obviously we're going to need both. The question is how much of both? In the United States, if you look from 1990 to the present, the number of jobs that require STEM has actually gone down a little bit. The number that require soft skills has gone up. You know, that makes sense when you ask, you know, what it is, you know, machines can replace, um, you know, or not replace. That's a but, bit, that's a bit um, worrying, you know, though, but Jason, because gov- governments are, are, are still playing catch-up then because as the number of STEM jobs may have gone down slightly, all of a sudden governments have woken up to the idea in education, we have to put more emphasis on STEM. You know, I'm tw- I don't want to say don't do STEM. You know, I have a three-year-old, and if, if Lithuania had a boarding program, I would love to send him um, to get exactly those skills and get started now. It's a great thing. It's an important thing. This is Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. Review us on iTunes. Email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com. Follow us on Twitter at ebrd. So, Sergey, in our transition report, you also mentioned another really important challenge, and that's migration. Obviously, migration changes the way that our political landscape unfolds. You can see this, obviously, demonstrated in what's happening in Europe. You can see a little bit of the sentiment in the United States. Um, But really, the rate of migration, how much has it really changed? There's a clip from Migration Matters, an NGO dealing with migration issues, and Heinde Haas, who's who's a professor of sociology from the University of Amsterdam and author of the book, The Age of Migration, has some great kind of stats for us to look at. Half a century ago, about 3% of the world population was an international migrant. That's still the same percentage. So if we look at the longer term, actually migration hasn't accelerated. Of course, there's more migrants, but there's also more people in the world. All forms of mobility have gone up, like travel, commuting, business travel, tourism obviously have spiked. But actually, migration in terms of people changing residency has been remarkably stable again. So, Sergey, Jason, and I guess, uh, Jason, I'll give you a, a first chance since you're here in the studio with us. So why is migration connected to the future of work? Um, I mean, first of all, the fact that migration is unchanged may be true at the global level um, for a lot of countries, including, you know, the West, you know, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Sweden. The share of the population that is migrants is, is much higher now than what it was um, 50 years ago. So I think there has been an important change. But in some sense, um, robots, migration, and trade, all three of them 
are ways of replacing labor that was native to a country, producing something either with someone that's brought to your country, someone that does it remotely and sells it into your country, or, you know, a machine. And, you know, all three of those have enormous benefits um, for economies. All three of those are really critical. But one of them comes with a human face that sometimes looks different or appears different and gets wrapped up in a set of, you know, prejudice, you know, nativism in a way that, you know, people worry about migrants. Absolutely. And Sergey, you know, in our countries of operation, are we seeing the same thing, the same challenge that migration poses on just the culture in our countries? And also, we not only deal with migration, but emigration. Um, what are your thoughts? In some of our countries, it's not the challenge of immigration, but the challenge of emigration, where uh, when the uh, UK or Germany benefits from skilled labor coming from Central and Eastern Europe, to help address demographic challenges, this very flow of migration from Central and Eastern Europe to the, to the West actually hits the productivity in home countries. And that is a major challenge. Okay, let's try and draw some conclusions, I think, because we've heard a fair amount of evidence. If I can remind you, of course, my dilemma was this question, this conundrum, are are robots taking over our jobs? What's the future of work? What does it look like? Uh, And is it us against the machines or is it much more complex than that? I think we've heard it's a lot more complex than that. Um, Jason, your concluding thoughts, if we look ahead 10 years or so, what do you think it looks like, the, the, the world of work? I think what it looks like depends on our choices, the choices our governments make, businesses make, and people make. There's nothing inherent in technology that says anything about whether it's going to take jobs, add to jobs, increase inequality, decrease inequality. It's something that we can decide um, how to manage. And I think if we put in place the right policies, ones that emphasize skills training, but also you know, um, more than that, um, we can use it to make us, you know, richer, richer, happier, more productive, and maybe even getting more sleep at night. Um, <laughs> but that none of that is automatic and will depend on, on what we do and, and what we So if I listen to your answer, I, I sort of get the impression that we're worrying slightly too much and we should be slightly more optimistic, is it? No, I think in some ways maybe we should be worried more. Because I don't believe in technological determinism. Mm. If you think the robots are coming to take all our jobs, <laughs> then you should just <laughs> relax and hate it. Um, there's, there's nothing you can do. Um, what I'm saying is, you know, it's not about the robots. The future is about in our us. Hands. So, Sergey, um, you know, from this conversation, we've touched on everything from migration to skills, you know, things that might be positive from this revolution, um, but also that robots aren't taking our jobs, but they might be taking, you know, part of them. What, what's your conclusion? And, and really, how can our countries prepare for the future? The future of work is not predetermined. The second issue is also very important. It's uh, fairness and uh, removing barriers to competition. A lot of people would think that in order to solve the problems of technological progress and future of work, we need to slow it down to uh, insert barriers also actually to put barriers for uh, against globalization. And I think this is a very dangerous task because whenever you uh, erect barriers to competition, you create rents. 
you create opportunities for rent seeking, for crony capital, for corruption. We've seen that in some of our countries. And we know that crony capitalism does not deliver. It delivers to the cronies, but not to the people. So, Jonathan, humans or robots? Well, I'm debating whether I'm more worried, I think, than I was at the beginning of the program. Because in one way, I'm optimistic, you know, not just because of what I've heard, but generally I'm an optimist in life. And I do think that the future is in our hands. And I think there are plenty of historical examples Uh, if we look back over hundreds of years where people thought it was the end of the world because some technology was coming in, and in fact that's proved not to be right. Uh, We've always found a way through. So from that point of view, I'm certainly optimistic. I do think, though, that we live in very complex times and that this, what worries me now more, is I think this will lead to greater um, inequality uh, in our societies, and I think that's an issue because I think governments are not very good at putting into place the systems to allow lifelong learning, to be ahead of the curve, uh, to make sure, you know, if they'd have started in the late 1990s, they would have been ahead of the curve, but that just didn't happen. We heard the talk, and I think we still hear a lot of talk about lifelong learning, lifelong education, but I don't really see enough structures in place for us to get ahead of the robotics issue. Fair enough. I, I, I'm also an optimist, so I, I tend to envision a world where we're doing tasks that actually just feed us and we, that we really enjoy. But, um, but at the same time, I'm also really worried about the social safety nets. Mm. So what happens when you know, pensions are no longer carried by, by companies and governments and you are left with trying to figure out your own health insurance while getting older? It's just, you know, it's a, it's a whole basket of complex issues, but um, we're lucky to have experts like we, like we did on the phone today and here in the studio to help us sort this out. Yes, a big thank you to uh, Jason Furman and also Sergey Guriev for joining us uh, on the phone uh, in the snow in Switzerland. Uh, you can find out, by the way, more about the EBRD's transition report online. You'll find it at uh, ebrd.com. Uh, you have been listening to Pocket Dilemmas, uh, Kerry and I. Uh, thank you for joining us. It is the podcast which explores the political and economic problems which shape our world. Uh, remember to review us on iTunes. Email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com. Follow us on Twitter at ebrd. From Kerry and from me. Goodbye. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, send us your feedback, suggestions and ideas on dilemmas at ebrd.com. And remember, reviewing and rating us helps others to find us. Until next time. <laughs>